Academic Roundtable of Pop Culture Analysis with Drinking and Swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Palindrome Hannah Lee Rogers. How's it going, Hannah? Oh, you know, it's going. <laughs> uh, see, I, I, I was going to do the dreary thing this week, because you know, you, you're supposed to be happy, so I can go, eh. <laughs> Oh, is, is, there, is there something wrong that you need to talk about on yes. air? Well, if, if, you know, hopefully we are on air, because we've been having server problems this week, which means Right now, as we record the show, there is no server to post the show to. If you are hearing this show, that means that I fixed it over the weekend and probably have no hair left because I've been pulling it out all weekend. But um, I'm working on that. And theoretically, we're recording the show and there's a server to post it on and everyone's happy. It might be a day or two late. We'll see. So I'm having a great time. And also, I'm writing a dissertation in that same time. And, you know, there's probably some Christmas shopping I should be doing or something like that. So. Been fun. <laughs> How about you? Do you have a happy story to cheer me up this week? Uh, I went to go see Knives Out again yesterday, and that was fun. I like that movie. I like that movie a lot. Um, I went. I went to a Krampus party last night. That, that was something. <laughs> I I don't think I'd be brave enough to go to a Krampus party. <laughs> yeah. It was alright. It was it was fun. There there was merriment or something. Very Christmassy. Uh, anyway, I don't know if Knives Out counts as the kind of movie that we're talking about, but um, we were gonna talk about movies this week, or not? Well, like movies. not not just movies. Yeah. What are we talking about? We are talking about sentimentality in popular culture and to be fair that can mean a lot of things it could mean talking about dickens Mm -hmm. it could mean talking about it's a wonderful life it could mean talking about a dog's journey or whatever those movies are called or marley and me you know the the movie where the dog dies or something and you cry the dog dies and everyone gets sad and cries yeah (laughs) um because we have this idea of, you know, seminal literature, film, what have you. And it's kind of construed as a negative thing, or at least a thing that isn't in and of itself positive, because it makes us feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can give a quick and dirty history of sentimentality if anyone wants it. I think we should introduce the guest first, but then yeah. then we should, then we'll definitely do that. Yeah, but I, you know, I was going to say, but it's going to be not quick enough to please people who don't want to hear about philosophy and probably too quick for people who are into philosophy. Yeah, so. That's fine. This show. <laughs> anyway, um, so before we start, we had um, two guests that, you know, are going to join us this week. So first, sitting across from me, I'd like to welcome back my wife, Stephanie. Hey, Steph. Hi. And, and Steph, I, I asked you to come in because, as always, you're a psychologist. So you know everything about how the brain works ever. And you are the smartest person in the world. So you're going to tell us oh, how emotion gee. works. So Steph, explain emotion to us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll hold that for later in the episode. <laughs> okay. And also joining us, we have Marcel, who's been on the show before. Marcel Walker. Hey, Marcel. Hi, friends. How you doing? <laughs> So you asked to be on this one. You you, you voluntarily Why? came and joined Why? this madness. Yeah. 
because this is a topic that I, I end up talking about a lot, like specifically, well, sentimentality, sentiment, sentimentality, and sentiment in popular culture. And mm-hmm. I spend so much time talking about it. I, I think because generally speaking, I am perceived as being such a positive person. Um, mm-hmm. it, it tends to come up a lot. And when I heard this was going to be discussed, yeah, I, I wanted to get in on this discussion because I have, I have some pretty strong feelings about, uh, about what we see in regards to, you know, what would equates to sentiment, what would generates it. And, you know, I generally speaking, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it gets a really bad rap anymore. So yeah. I kind of wanted to be in part of this conversation. Well, let's go to Hannah's definition then, because because uh, well, we were ta- Hannah and I were talking before the show. There's many definitions, but it's a complicated issue that comes up a lot in literary studies. And so, why don't you start and give some background? Okay. Uh, well, for those of you who don't actually know what I study, um, my dissertation is called "More Than a Feeling: How the 19th Century British Novel Reformed the Passions." So I work broadly in a kind of confusing field that could be construed as the history of emotions. And it's a complicated field, partially because there's mushiness of terms. So there's like the passions, emotions, feeling, affect, sentiments, like, you know, tons of words to describe something that may or may not be the same thing. Uh, emotions have also changed over time and have multiple meanings and different cultures have different conceptions of named emotions. And there's also a question of whether or not the emotions are natural um, and or universal. And also feelings, um, whenever like we talk about them, aren't just what we personally feel, but how we imagine them as some sort of shared community, usually through literature, our philosophy and my purview, usually. Um, and so I, it really like sentimentality in the way I think that we kind of conceptualize it in popular culture now really kind of begins in the British tradition in the 18th century. There was something called the Simmel novel. And some examples of that are Pamela, Miss Sidney Biddulph, the woman of color in these novels, uh, which are usually, yeah, yeah. Which are usually about women. You have women of great feeling, but also like their moral examples, like bad things happen to them, but they still like lead moral lives. Like Pamela is called virtue rewarded. And, uh, Mav just mentioned Clarissa, which is another um, novel by Samuel Richardson, the guy who wrote Pamela. And in that, uh, Clarissa does not have virtue rewarded because the point is to be virtuous, even if you're not. So not all these novels have happy endings. And if you've read the blog, Mav talked a little bit about the ties between sentimentality and gender. And as Rob Bodice, who is like a guy who works in the history of emotions, has pointed out, like since at least the 18th century, sentimentality and the feminine have been like commonly associated. I mean, you can see this with like how a lot of like the novels focus on their female characters and portray them in relation to feeling Uh, at the same around the same time. uh, Philosophers such as David Hume and Adam Smith were writing about how feeling sentiments like could guide you, um, not just reason. Like if you go to our problematic fave philosopher on the show, Kant, probably he actually argued that (laughs) reason was the way to go, not passion. Uh, there's actually, um, an argument between Chidi and his girlfriend on the good place in the latest episode. Second best Uh, ever. Uh, not this, uh, <laughs> really actually gets about like this dichotomy and philosophy between reason and feeling and like what different philosophers thought about it. Um, but Adam Smith, I think is really important to how we conceive of literature and sentimentality 
Because while sympathy and sentimentality are not the same, Smith came up with a definition of sympathy that we rely on a lot, which I'm going to quote right now. Quote, by imagination, we place ourselves in a person's situation. We conceive ourselves enduring all the same torments. We enter, as it were, into his body and become in some measure the same person with him and thence form some idea of his sensations and even feel something which, though weaker in degree, is not altogether unlike them. And so we like feel this person's agonies and distress and what have you. And importantly, we imagine what kind of sensation or emotion is involved in this person. And it's not, but it's not the same emotion they're feeling. It's what we imaginatively think. So for Smith, there is a spectator and the spectator is male. And he like conceives of what people are likely to think. And the reason why it upsets the spectator so much is because he imagines himself in the place of that person. Smith also like in writing more in like the theory of moral sentiments talked about, you know, class and why we feel for the rich versus for the poor. And even though he sees a problem with this, he's still like, well, you know, class has to be this for this reason. And like women are different than men. So they like they they really aren't the, you know, gentleman spectator. So this is this is all important because later in the 19th century, that gets reconceptualized Uh, kind of in between the 18th century and the 19th century Victorian period. We have things like Austin's Sense and Sensibility, where characters like Marion Dashwood, who feel too much, are chastened. And there's less of a turn to feeling than there was before. In any case, even for people who liked feeling, reason and feeling went hand in hand. Um, Mm -hmm. So... Uh, sympathy kind of becomes something else in the Victorian period because of Charles Darwin and by, and the emotions being tied to biology. But I want to talk about Charles Dickens, not because I love Charles Dickens, but because I think he does something really important. And then I promise to take us to the 20th century. Uh, so Dickens is known for writing social novels and he actually like was kind of coded as like one of the main British sentimental writers of the 19th century because of his depictions and his ability of, of the poor and his ability to produce feeling in his readers. He even admits to this, like in his preface to Dombey and Son, he said he hoped to provoke reader sympathy in every stage of the journey. If any of them have felt a sorrow in one of the principal incidents on which this fiction turns, I hope it may be a sorrow of that sort which endures the shares and it one to another. So sympathy for Dickens was creating a community of readers where they felt together. And, you know, he, he like really like wrote fiction critiquing poor houses and prisons and all of basically everything wrong with the Victorian period, including the bureaucracy, which if you ever read something critiquing like the Chancery Court or the Circumlocution Office in Dickens, you'll think like the post office or the DMV today. So when he wrote these novels, he like rejected utilitarianism, which, you know, we think of pains and pleasures and measure against like what produces the most pain and the most pleasure. Dickens thought that feelings were not subject to reason, but his still feelings do help the characters become caretakers of their fellow man. We see this with Ebenezer Scrooge's change of heart towards the Cratchit family in A Christmas Carol. We see pebble figures throughout Dickens, like Little Nell and Tiny Tim, who admittedly is like a prominent example of what we call inspiration porn now. And while made of Dickens' contemporaries and critics today, like someone like Talia Schaefer or Oscar Wilde in his time, have critiqued Dickens for his ability to produce overall feeling. I would say that this particular version of sentimentality, this feeling, is what gives power to Dickens' novels. And, you know, I really think that he kind of bridges a lot of, like, what we think about sentimentality to the 
present. Um, there have been books on this too, and this is where I'll wrap it up. Um, like James Chandler wrote a book about um, the history of sympathy and sentimentality going from like the 18th century to like Frank Capra's films. And I think you, you do see a lot of like vestiges of a Christmas Carol in It's a Wonderful Life. So that's my history. I'll stop now and let other people talk. I'll, I'll jump in just to add a little bit um, that happens. You know, once you do hit the 20th century, you end up with try to avoid too many academic time periods that are rough. But you end up with a period called modernism, which is we are now after modernism or postmodernism in in some or maybe even post postmodern. It's very confusing. But during the modernist era, which is the early 20th century, um, Hannah mentioned that sentimentality in the 19th and 18th century had been tied to the idea of women. So there's a rejection of it. There's an intentional rejection of it in great literary fiction. Um, in particular, if you think about the writing of Ernest Hemingway, Hemingway is a stoic. You know, his his writing is supposed to be emotionless, but it's not. It's not so much emotionless so much as it is, you know, the the um, the pinnacle of masculinity and manhood in that portion was the ability to repress the emotions. So if you read Hemingway, what actually happens is a lot of emotional stuff happens. And then you're supposed to marvel at the way that the guy maintains his composure. And that's where a lot of the our negative our current negative ideas about what sentimentality is are sort of based on this ideal from the greatest generation where where, you know, something emotional and horrible happens to you, but you power through. And um, and it was never and this is where if we're getting into like sort of, you know, moving from Hannah's time period to my time period, here's where some of our disagreements happen as to what were people actually sentimental or not. And they, they certainly were. People have always had emotions. There obviously always is emotion in those books. It's just it's about the representation of, you know, how do you deal with it? Because showing too much emotion was seen as feminine. So the man will, you know, if you think about like cowboy movies, you'll see something horrible happens and John Wayne sheds a single tear. Right. Like <laughs> That's like the thing. Like, you know, it's like, oh, you can tell he felt it and it was important right. to him because emotion is sort of like emotion pulling something like that happening. If you think about the American heroic story, the American monomyth, as I call it in my dissertation, you know, whether you're a cowboy, whether you're Superman, whatever, you're not just Superman doesn't just go save the world because it's his job. Superman saves the world because he cares, you know, but like Superman from the 1930s and 1940s, he can't go around crying because that wouldn't be super. So instead, just something horrible happens and his reaction to it is to go punch stuff. Right. That's it. That's the so that becomes our the modernist definition. And again, modernism is sort of early 20th century, very, very late 19th century, but probably early 20th century up until about the Second World War. Um, after that, we move into a postmodern era. So but like we still kind of move to we still kind of work with this this modernist appeal of, you know, I am not going to react. But the problem is, in order to really get across the, the stoicism of the heroic male figure, you've got to have very emotional stuff happening so as to see how strong he is to not react. So that's why you end up with you end up with all these detective novels where horrible things are happening. People are dying all over you, all over the place. You know, someone's killed and, you know, and the widow comes to hire the detective and she's, you know, all in black and crying. And, you know, he knows that it's horrible. So there's a lot of stuff that you could feel emotional about. But the power of your Sam Spade is that he doesn't react to it, or at least he he maintains his composure during it. So so we all we've always had this thing where sentimentality was a thing. 
Um, and then we started we started sort of confusing it in popular criticism where we started saying, oh, well, I don't like sentimental stuff because I'm a man. <laughs> you know, I don't eat quiche, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but um, really what was happening was there were a lot of act- absolutely very emotional books that had unrealistic responses by the characters to the emotion. And uh, in a lot of ways, they were just as emotional as they had always been. And so so it's a it's a at least that's the way that's the camp that I fall on. Other people would say that they're that they're that it wasn't that we stopped doing, using emotion at all during, like, say, Hemingway's book for that time. But I, I don't think that's true. I think that if you read Great Gatsby by, um, you know, by Fitzgerald, everything horrible happens in that book. Like, it's just it's a, it's a bunch of really emotional stuff. And yet, you know, the it seems unsentimental because of their reactions to it. You know, they of course, if they just allowed themselves to talk about their feelings, probably Gatsby would have turned out better. So, so, you know, it is sort of a criticism of it as well. Anyway, here ends the, you know, school portion of the the talk for for the night, or at least the literary studies portion. Don't make promises you can't keep. Yeah, you probably shouldn't because, um, because I was just about to ask Steph, um, could you tell us a little bit about what, if from a psychological point, what does sentimental mean? Or you were, you were doing some research earlier. Yeah, the the word sentimentalism, I think it's really more in the realm of literature than in psychology. I've, to be honest, I've never, I don't think I've ever, at least, like, it stood out to me, like, when I was at a talk, they talk about emotion a lot and how emotion, the role of emotion in learning and adapting to the environment and that kind of thing. But um, sentimentalism in particular, I don't think I actually tried to um, do a bit of um, research in um, and well, very little to be <laughs> frank. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the um, papers I found were actually in the realm of literature. So in psych, yeah, it's not a really like well developed. Well, it would just be another emotion, right? Would- um, I guess so. If you define sentimentality as emotion associated from with more kind of like past events like when you're watching a movie you become emotional like a lar- in large part this is my understanding of sentimentality um you become emotional because it reminds you of something some like emotional event from your childhood or like a lost love like it seems like a lot of a sentimentality in movies at least is associated with like a lost love and so like that kind of thing like basically like emotional feelings that kind of arise from past events so um i probably more like they study it in clinical psychology i would think mm-hmm. but i'm in cognitive learning educational psychology in that area um not so much mm-hmm. um when i was in grad school we did uh, one of the um studies that we did was we looked at the um we looked at um physics learning and we had like uh student and a physics teacher in separate rooms and they communicated either through speaking to each other uh, on I think like a phone intercom or through uh, through typing messages to each other um, and anyway we, we found that regardless of the mode that students learned more when they got negative feedback on a specific concept um, so that's kind of where <laughs> that's kind of the extent of where um, I of my knowledge of the topic comes from like if you have negative emotion emotions help learning if you associate like a negative event like a negative like you hit an impasse in some topic and you receive negative feedback then 
you um, you learn more from that experience. But is is in terms of sentimentality per se. Yeah, I uh, I don't think it's studied as much in psychology, at least in my my realm as as other realms. But I'll try to answer like <laughs> from what I know. Uh, um, I mean, I, I guess you can um, think of sentimentality in terms of how people remember things, remember past events, and how our we've. I think you've talked before on this show about how memories change and how every time we remember something, we recreate that and we change the actual memory. And so maybe a lot of it in turn, like sentimentality comes from your like recreating a past event to make it into something that's idealistic. And then when you watch a movie or something, you're reminded of that. And then that elicits stronger, more positive emotions rather than probably the more amb- ambiguous or ambivalent emotions you experience at the time when it actually happens. So I think like maybe that kind of change in your, your memories over time, maybe like kind of like in what's the word, like mag magnifies the, the feelings of emotions you have when you, watch something that reminds you of a past event. I find it really interesting that you use the word positive when you were describing um, sentimentality, because again, as Hannah pointed out at the very beginning, people tend to use, at least people in 2019, 2020, whenever you're listening to this, um, people tend to use the word negatively. In fact, um, we had a comment um, on the blog uh, from Keith Irwin, who says, as I've grown older, I've grown more irritated by works of art, which play on my emotion it um if it feels like it does so just for the sake of playing on my emotion that is it, um it trying to make me feel happy and sad simply because people like feeling happy or sad and it wants me to like it i just wind up in- irritated if instead i feel like it's making a statement about what is to be human not through real human characters and then as part of that i wind up empathizing with those characters and that makes me happy or sad i am still okay with that and i think what he's getting at is you know he's sort of getting at the idea of sentimentality as you know as just sort of people use it as this is a negative use of emotion but i don't think it really means that and what and what i think is interesting is you were talking about you know you like being reminded of whether your memories are real or fictional you like being reminded of these strong emotional ties that you have so you've created this ideal image in your head and you're saying that you are theorizing that we like emotion we like emotional movies that make us recall a feeling of love or even a feeling well, of sorrow i right? i think i use positive term but it could certainly go the opposite direction sure um like the um movie that I feel like I hate the most probably is called Dying Young. I think Julia Roberts was in it, which was a horrible, horrible movie for me to watch. I cried literally like the entire freaking movie. Um, and it's because my my brother had when he was like young, he he had leukemia and he died and it reminded me of that. And so it certainly can go either direction. <laughs> it can be very positive. Very well, but my 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 theory is, though, for instance, you know, yes, it's sad, but also I, I imagine as hard as it is, part of you enjoys thinking about your brother every once in a while as, you know, still feeling connected to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess that's probably yeah. true. Uh, anyway, but the reason I was bringing that up was because you, you your usage of the word positive, even though I think it was incidental, sort of ties into what Marcel was saying when he introduced himself at the beginning, which is, and uh, for, for listeners who don't know Marcel as well as, well, as well as Stephanie and I do, Marcel absolutely does come across as a very positive person. Yes, <laughs> so, very much so. So, so Marcel, like, 
what, what did you mean by that? Well, oh man, there's a lot to unpack after. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I, so I am not studied in sentiment in the same way that several of you are, uh, particularly you, Hannah, because, you know, like what you said was very, uh, it was very informative. I, I did a little bit of research before, you know, before joining you here today. And I, I, I was reading about sentiment analysis, which may is that's, I guess that relates to what you were talking about, or maybe that is exactly what you were talking about earlier, but I was reading in sentiment analysis. I just a little, because admittedly it kind of made me fuzz out a little, um, <laughs> but it, you know, it is important to kind of dive into like, just what is sentiment when we talk about that? Now, <laughs> when you were just Mav, when you were just talking about Keith, I, it immediately made me think of, I have a friend who I remember going to a movie with a group of folks and we saw this particular movie and it was a pop culture movie. I'll just say that it was super pop culture movie. And afterwards, we all were pretty much unanimous in liking it, but there was a particular element of the plot that rubbed one of the friends the wrong way. And it had to do with a character's past and a relationship with one of their parents. And they were, they, they, they noted like it, it the, I guess I, to them, it came across the fake sentimentality or whatever. But what you were just describing reminded me of this friend's reaction. Now I'm going to say this and I'm being, I'm being flippant here, but I said, when I come across people who have that kind of reaction, my first thought is always, man, they need a hug. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like, wow. Because I tend to equate a reaction like that. It has, I think it has less to do with, well, the thing I think it has the most to do with is a lack of control or perceived lack of per- control of their own emotions. Like, so there is some outside source where we'll say our popular media where somebody is really trying to dictate the, the audience's emotional state. Now, the reason why I think it has to do with, with control issues more than anything else is that's the job of media that we, that we are, that we take in. Um, I've heard Quentin Tarantino and Tim Burton talk about just what it's like being a director. And, you know, Tarantino in particular has talked about how his job as a filmmaker is to use film the way a conductor uses music. You are, you are there to take your audience on an emotional ride, whether they realize it or not, that's what you're doing. And it's a measure of how well you're doing it, that people are able to follow along, that their, their emotions are rising and falling and cresting and breaking based on where you're guiding them. Now, I think genuine sentiment in media does it without, I'm going to say, trying too hard. Um, over the Thanksgiving holiday, I was away with my girlfriend. And at one point we ended up watching, because it was just on TV, several Lifetime movies. And because it was on TV, you you just like made the caveat of I I would not have consumed this literature, but it was just there because it's a it's a tripped and fell and turn it on. It was literally like it was all and uh, to be fair, to be absolutely fair, there was one I was kind of sort of looking for because Kim Fields was in it. I hadn't seen Kim Fields in years and I had a mad crush on her back in the day. She was on Facts of Life. Yeah. I was like, oh, Kim Fields. I actually ended up seeing a little bit of that movie. Marcel and I are black men of a certain age. And (laughs) (laughs) the thing. I I ended up watching several. There was another one that had Tony Braxton in it. She's a terrible actress, but but Gloria Rubin was in it too. And she's a wonderful actress. And so I ended up, I'm watching these movies and 
here's here's an observation I had. When you had really good actors in there, even when they had, you know, these these really cookie cutter type scripts and things like where you can totally predict who's going to end up with who and how it's going to work. You had really good actors. It's less mm-hmm. noticeable and you mind less. When you had you know poor actors or whatever, it just kind of magnifies how false it is. So false sentiment. So I think it, it's the way we absorb sentiment in media, a lot of it is dictated by how well it's presented to us. Um, mm-hmm. When I was also looking this stuff, I, I, you know, I went back to formula. I cracked over my dictionary and I, I came across definitions for two words, uh, one of which being sentiment and another one that goes along with it in my mind, which is nostalgia. Steph, you mentioned about the element of the past and how that plays into sentiment. I totally agree. Everything that I've ever seen shows that to be true. Um, the definition that I came across that seemed the closest suited to this was sentiment, refined or tender emotion, manifestation of the higher or more refined feelings, exhibition or manifestation of feeling or sensibility or appeal to the tender emotions in literature, art, or music, a thought influenced by or proceeding from feeling or emotion. And then there was nostalgia, uh, the definition. And again, there was other, there was several definitions, but the one I think that relates the most is a wistful desire to return in thought or in fact to a former time in one's life, to one's home or homeland or to one's family and friends, a sentimental yearning for the happiness of a former place or time. So in one way, shape or form, I think media that we consider to be sentimental, at least like, I, I don't know, I let's, let's say from the last hundred years, roughly it evokes, mm-hmm. it prompts something in the viewer, the audience that makes them think of something with the past. It makes them recall the past. Now it might be like the story itself makes them recall the past. Like, you know, it might be something that is set in the past. So it's actively doing that. You know, maybe, you know, you have a period piece that's set in the 19 fill in the blanks and you grew up then and you recall that time. So it's making you feel sentimental that way. Or maybe it's a movie that you experienced in the past. And by watching it, it triggers the memories that you have associated with the time when you saw that movie in the past. You know, we've all experienced both of those situations. You know, I've seen movies set in the shoot. Uh, Stranger Things makes me <laughs> is sentimental to me because like I'm the age of the characters in that in that show. And, you know, that's the 1980s. And I remember all that stuff. So I watched that and I did totally sucks me in and makes me think this past weekend. <laughs> and this may have been the well, or excuse me, last week. This is probably one of the big reasons why I was like, I have to get in on that podcast. On one day, I saw two two things and it occurred to me, wow, yeah, sentiment. One was the movie Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Mr. Rogers movie. I haven't seen it yet. Hannah's seen I, it. I've seen it. Yes. Yeah. And a- absolutely um, appropriate to bring up an episode about feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the other was one that you had mentioned a little earlier, which was It's a Wonderful Life. And so I saw both of these movies in the same day. And I think these are perfect examples of sentiment in media and how that brings that up. And I will say, and this is, is this, I mean, it doesn't spoil anything with uh, the, the, the neighborhood movie. Um, <laughs> it's actually, a couple of things. One, if you watch that movie and you're from Pittsburgh, I just think it's 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 going to spark nostalgia no matter what, because that movie is so from Pittsburgh. Even the scenes that are set in New York, if you're not from Pittsburgh, you might not notice or care. If you're yeah. from Pittsburgh because I saw this in New York State. I'm going to tell you, it was oh, this movie's from this is Pittsburgh. All yeah, the way. For listeners who don't know, uh, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood is Pittsburgh. And in fact, the studio where Mr. Rogers Neighborhood um, was filmed is I mean, it's four miles from where I'm sitting right now. 
three blocks from where Stephanie works. So, so we are very familiar with Mr. Rogers neighborhood for um, Steph, Marcel and I. Yeah. <laughs> you can't not be. Yeah. And it, it also was, I have to give credit where credit was due. My, my girlfriend, Kristen, she actually said the thing. I, I feel like I was on the cusp of making this realization, but she said it, which was mm-hmm. one of the things that makes these movies comparable is Fred Rogers in beautiful day in the neighborhood essentially serves the same purpose as Clarence does in it's a wonderful life because the former movie is not so much about his experience. It is, but it's really, there's another character reporter character who is our main character. We're following that character's journey. And so Fred is the, I'm going to say the magical element in that person's life. And both of those characters, Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life and Fred Rogers in A Beautiful Day, they cause the main protagonist to reflect on their lie. And I think there's where nostalgia kind of kicks in. Like when you are prompted to reflect on your life in some way, shape or form, and then you're able to somehow cull from that positive experiences, uh, you know, where there's positivity and there's a passion involved that, you know, that's sentiment. And I, so I, when I see sentiment being regarded as a negative thing, just like an automatic thing, I, I have to, I have to resist that notion because th- there's, there's nothing wrong as I see it with, with recalling the past and like trying to reconnect with that, which was good and, and make you, makes you feel good. Remembering feeling good because we get older and we forget what it's like to feel good. But, you know, you know, it's not just like in those movies and actually in what I would say is the predecessor of those movies, A Christmas Carol, in which three ghosts make Ebenezer Scrooge reflect upon his life. It's not just positive, like rose colored glass nostalgia. Mm-hmm. They're also forced to reflect on negative aspects of their life. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. and importantly, in all three of these texts, it's not just about the individual. It's about politics too like like feelings have consequences and to feel is to not just feel for oneself but to feel for others and in doing so you then recognize problems in society that affect the poor and how awful workhouses are and there is a reason to keep the bank and loan going and it's a wonderful life and capitalism is evil and frank capra um is a great example of picking up on the political like undertones of sentimentality that are especially prominent in dickens because in actually one of my favorite movies of all time that is not it's a wonderful life mr smith goes to washington Ooh, okay we, we have a sentimental hero mm-hmm. who who like through his actions you know goes up against like the corporate media as it was in that time he goes up against a political machine he uses sentiment in his final speech to change the tide that was going against him through the political powers that be and immediately frank capra got more cynical as time went on because in its wonderful life mr potter does not get punished in the same way that it's implied that the characters in mr smith goes to washington will be but you know there's still like this undertone of like you can make a difference change can come from the bottom up we must resist the evils of capitalism which you know i i like in dickens's best work that is what he does even though he is not a marxist in the way i wish he was um but you know there's there's a thing in sentimentality that i find like even in uh has anyone seen Last Christmas besides me? And no, but I know and, the plot yeah. twist, and I don't think yeah. there's no way anybody else is gonna on this show is gonna see it. So, well, which, I, is, which one is Christmas? which one is last the Christmas, Last Christmas? It's Amelia Clark and um, oh, Emma Thompson. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
And that movie has been marketed as a romantic comedy and like cheerful Christmas sentiment. But like, if you go watch that film, um, yes, there is a melodramatic twist, which Dickens also got critiqued for um, whenever he was writing. Even just coincidence, like, oh, Oliver Twist happens to find the people who like care about Oliver Twist and happens to have the secret life. Anyway, uh, spoilers for a very old book. Um, yeah, so sure. Like, it's it's like a Christmas cheer film. But on top of that, there's commentary on Brexit. Uh, Amelia Clark's <laughs> character ends up getting involved with the homeless shelter uh, and like promoting like a sense of like care in her community. Uh, so there's you know there's a lot more to a many of these seminal films. And even if you look at other movies that seem silly um, or on the surface, like The Night Before Christmas, yes, the Netflix movie with Vanessa Hudgens and The Time Traveling Night, like there is like a sense of charity and like an emphasis, like even if it's not as strong as in Dickens or Capra to like care about your fellow human being. Hannah, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that and all those components because something that that I was struck by uh, when I watched the two movies recently back to back more or less was we, when we talk about sentiment, we often don't realize like, like the best narratives that utilize that either, you know, on purpose or it just happens. They're usually juxtaposed with darker themes as well. And and that was true in both of the movies I saw. Um, you know, it had been a little while since I'd seen It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, not not long enough that I'd forgotten it or anything, but it'd just been a little while since I'd really been able to stop and look at it and see it. And and also I have to point out, as I get older and watch that movie, a lot of the things that are going on resonate deep more deeply with me. Like George Bailey's situation in that movie, you know, as 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 an adult adult now, I get it. Like I get, you know, his sense of frustration with not being able to do the things in his life that he had planned when he was younger, but also, you know, there's the things in, that he's content with and about. Um, did you just hear music? I just heard music. This is what Matt has like started to do anytime we as like co-hosts to get sentimental. He plays the same music making fun of us for having feelings because he's dead inside. It's the saddest song ever though. It's from The Hulk. <laughs> yes, the lonely man. I I just yeah. for a second, am I having a stroke? Am I <laughs> <laughs> I saw him leaning over, so it's not surprising to me. <laughs> Usually nice to our guests, if nothing else. Well, I, it was beautiful what he was saying. Yeah, I, I did. That's why I, I thought it needed a compliment. <laughs> the thing that I hadn't really thought about as much, though, and like I was really struck by this, is it's there's some really kind of chilling stuff that's happening in It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, not just the flashback scene. There's stuff before we get there that we, you know, we don't immediately think of, but it's when you get to that flashback scene, you know, it's, it's really stark. And, uh, and, and in the Fred Rogers movie, uh, the, the protagonist character of uh, the reporter, he's going through a lot of stuff and it's, it's obvious that he experienced a traumatic childhood. And I, I when you, I think when you examine a, a truly, like a genuinely, truly uh, sentimental narrative, you, that, that component has to be there for it to work. Um, you know, we live in a, a more, I guess, I mean, it's been called a more cynical age. It's the only age I've lived in. So I can't really compare it directly <laughs> to any others. But, Back when you time travel to the 1300s. Yes. Right. You know, <laughs> you know it, 
we've always dealt with so many of the same things, but I mean, okay, here's what I think here. This is again, this is my theory on how a lot of this breaks down. One thing I think it is safe to say is we live in the most interconnected age that we've ever lived in. And absolutely, you know, so, and because of that, I think we're still coming to terms with that. You know, one of the big game changers, of course, was internet, but this is, it's been a progressive thing. You know, from the time we started, we had printed media, you know, that closed the gap some. And then when we, started communicating by you know, telegraph and then by telephone. And then we had recorded media and then we had you know, filmed media and on and on and on. So we've just been pulling ourselves closer and closer to one another. And, you know, I think a very natural reaction to that, at least at this stage, is you become guarded, you know, as more and more people are kind of aware of you and who and what you are. So I think that guardedness would be what we equate to our, our cynical age. So, mm-hmm. and, and, and when you're being cynical, sentiment can't reside in there easily. And I think that's be, based on, you know, we have a hard time believing people are genuine. You know, sure. the, when, when you're, when you're dealing with everybody kind of knowing where everybody's at, it's hard to believe that people are genuine. Therefore it is hard to accept sentiment for what it is. Um, but at the same time, I think when we, at, at the core, when we encounter people really are truly genuine like we might be resistant at first but i I just read an article this morning about uh, a reporter who was doing an article on the previous fred rogers movie the documentary came out last year won't you be my neighbor she said she had been binge watching episodes of the tv show and her husband asked her well don't you want to because she was in her bedroom and she was doing that and taking notes and her husband asked her, don't you want to come out and do that in the living room and the kids can watch it she was like oh no we're not doing that again because i guess her and her husband has had tried to expose her kids to other things that they'd grown up with like footloose and the kids were merciless so <laughs> she said it was, it had happened repeatedly with different things. And she was like, I'm not letting them take Mr. Rogers away from, it. but mm-hmm. she's in the room making notes and the kids came in, you know, they needed to do something. They needed information. I think one had like some schoolwork they wanted her to check and she had four kids and the youngest, I think she said was five, but she, they come in and she's reviewing it while that she's reviewing this. The kids start watching the show and they get really invested in the show. They watch an episode, then they watch a second episode, then they watch a third. And she realized like, and then the other two kids come in and they start watching it. And it was the exact opposite experience of what she expected. And, and later on, like much later, because her kids didn't like lose it. They didn't like forget about this thing they encountered one day. They were asking questions. They were really, she said, really engaged by Fred Rogers. And so she asked one of the younger ones later on, why do you, why do you like this so much? And the kid just sort of rolls their eyes as, you know, as if to say, oh, really? Mom? But they, they answer because he likes kids. We can tell when somebody likes kids. And I thought, oh my God, that's mm-hmm. exactly right, isn't it? And yep. like, that's it. Like they, she picked up, actually the word she used was, he was so genuine. Like we are yeah. disarmed when we encounter something that is genuine because that pierces the veil of our cynical age. Mm-hmm. I think calling it genuine is is really interesting because I agree with her for um, for Mr. Rogers. Can I tell a Mr. Rogers story real quick just to prove how genuine he is? So my um, my boss at the school I work, which I will not um, say what it is, but he (laughs) went to the same gym that Mr. Rogers went to and he saw him, I guess, every once in a while in the locker room. But he had just lost his mother. His mother had just recently died. And I guess he was visibly depressed and he had just like gone swimming or whatever. And Mr. Rogers 
saw him in the locker room and he noticed that he was feeling down and he asked him what was wrong and he ended up like crying in Mr. Rogers arms, which was like the sweetest, <laughs> like this is the sweetest guy. So yes, like their perception that Mr. Rogers is genuine is very, very accurate. My, my Mr. Rogers by proxy story is um, my old boss um, um, where I was working happened to be flying somewhere um, this is 2002, early 2002. So a few months after September 11th happened and um, we started doing the random security checks just happen. You know, TSA will pull a random person aside and say, all right, we need to pat you down. And, you know, we, we you know, and it's not as bad now, but in the year following September 11th, they would just randomly screen people and it's an aggressive screen where they want to they want to go through all your stuff and you know just just to you know that was their random check it was their security thing and steve was my boss's name steve comes back um he, from a business trip um in la and uh, and he flies back in and again as i said earlier uh, mr rogers is filmed or was filmed in pittsburgh so steve happened to be on the same flight back from la that mr rogers was on and so he he's in line behind him and um and they're like, sir, we're going to need to check you. And they pull him aside and, and they start patting him down. And it's like, what's in this? And, and Steve's just like, and, and Steve is in line going, guys, guys, it's Mr. Rogers. It's like, we have to do it. And like, sir, we have, to do, we have to do these random security checks. And Mr. Rogers is like, no, Clearly no, no, they that's need okay. Different <laughs> guidelines or something. Well, Steve, Steve, is, Steve is, and Steve, I remember him saying, if, if they got Mr. Rogers, the terrorist just won. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's not, you know, yeah. but, but, they, but, they, but, but Mr. Rogers apparently was, no, 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 they're just doing their oh. job. Jobs, you, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, it's okay, young man. And meanwhile, you know, Steve is 50 years old, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. but young man, it's fine. You know? yeah. And I have to say, like, I appreciate Mr. Rogers now as an adult more than I did as a child. Yeah. Because well, as a child, like, I thought, like, my parents were not nearly, and where they were really nothing like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> so he seemed, he didn't, he, I couldn't really relate, to, even though I watched it, I couldn't really relate and didn't really like, have this model that a human being could be as nice of a person as Mr. Rogers. And now that I've like, you know, gone off in the world and have met, you know, nicer, more of a variety of people, uh, then I now, you know, I you can believe say, that this person can exist. I, I thought guess. you were going to say you've met even bigger assholes. And then- <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, both in both directions. Yeah. Yeah. Is it my turn for my Mr. Rogers story? Sure. Okay. This is, this is dumb. I met with my advisor to talk about my dissertation like two weeks ago. And I, we were talking about how the novel conceptualizes emotion in the 19th century. And I said, well, I really like to think about it in the same way Mr. Rogers kind of conceptualizes show in that the novel helped people like find ways to deal with their feelings, which I, I think like literally is, you know, one of the highlight lines from the new movie and is emphasized a lot in the documentary. And she, I, I thought she was going to tell me it was dumb, but instead she like stopped, nod and said, yep, that's right. Think about Mr. Rogers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, well that, that's what I was going to get to when I brought up the genuine thing, because I think that there's like Mr. Rogers, absolutely a genuine human being. Anybody who's again, you can see him around Pittsburgh. Um, my, I, I never really met him and had the chance to talk to him one on one. I did work a, um, a PBS telethon once. So he was there. Hmm. 
um, back when I was in college, um, the first time, um, but I, uh, as a, as a fraternity sort of, um, um, uh, philanthropy kind of thing, we just, we went and we answered phones during the PBS t- call and tell fund. So I, I got to, I got to hang out. And if you're at WQED in Pittsburgh, the, our, our PBS channel, Mr. Rogers neighborhood used to be, now it's in the museum, but it used to just be there. You could just kind of walk through. And so like the coolest thing is being able to go and play in like the neighborhood of make believe, which I actually got to do, which is oh, awesome. Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh. I, was, I was like 20, I was like 20 years old. And I'm like, oh. this is so cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, um, but um, you have genuine people like that. But I, I don't think that, you know, we're, when we're, when we're talking about sentimentality, we're, we're usually talking about, Oh, the sad emotions or the heartstring pulling. But I don't think, I don't think it's just the genuine stuff because the movies that Hannah was talking about before, when you're talking about um, uh, what was the the night the, Christmas the night before thing, Christmas, the, it's the, the greatest title in before, the world. Yeah. The night before Christmas. That's an amazing pun, and they committed to it. <laughs> night yes. with a K. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, but like all of the Lifetime um, movies, all the Netflix um, Christmas movies, those aren't you know they're not going for gen- like when when Mr. Rogers sits down and tells you about you know look children here's how we're going to deal with 9/11 or the shooting of JFK both of which he did you know those are the, those are genuine moments where Mr. Rogers is having a heartfelt moment with children or when Mr. Rogers you know he just explains you know anything like you know, anything to you just you know on on your level and and he is caring when he's giving when he's giving stuff's boss a hug those things i i, I get but the emotions that are in a Netflix or a Hallmark Christmas movie, they're usually so, you know, I, I've never had a situation where I was confused for a princess trying to, and then like as a baker and, you know, fell in love. Like they're, they're just so beyond ridiculous, but I think they're still sentimental there. It, it's, it's the design to sort of make you what Steph was saying at the very beginning to sort of, you know, put you in a mental place where you're in memory, you're remembering a situation of love or loss or happiness or sadness or sadness. And like, it, you know, it's, it's sentiment. It's maybe that's the problem people have with it. They, they don't like the manipulation of the sentimental. You know what, Matt, let me volunteer something. And you know, you as a photographer will, I think particularly get this. I'm going to equate this metaphorically at least to when people smile, they have a photo taken of themselves. Mm -hmm. What what do you hear say, you know, often like real smiles, you see it in people's eyes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a real genuine smile, you, you can see it like there's something all over there, but you know, many people have trained themselves to just smile, you know, where it's not in the eyes and not just, but they're going through the motions. Like they are smiling. Right. And I think what you've just described is just, it's an iteration of that. You know, when we see the trappings of sentiment and even the trappings of sentiment can evoke sentiment. I mean, you know, I, I guess you could argue if I'm in a theater and I'm watching a performance of a Christmas carol, I'm not literally watching an old man being taken through a tour of his life, past and present and future. And, you know, like I'm not watching that. This is a facsimile of that, but it's still kind of doing the job of mm-hmm. making me feel reminiscent about some things myself. Yeah. And like Marcel, you were saying before, like the quality of the actor has an impact on mm-hmm. how much you enjoy the sentimentality of the movie. I think that's what you were saying before. So 
Like if someone can mm-hmm. legitimately express like true feelings and you interpret that as true feelings, then you relate to it and you kind of fall into it to some extent. So I'm also thinking about I, I was recently listening to um, Marcel on someone else's show. And then I went back and listened to you the first time you were on our show. And, you know, you were talking about, say, so for those who haven't heard Marcel's first episode here, uh, your day job is your literal day job is making comic books about the Holocaust. <laughs> like that is, that is one of your responsibilities. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tr- yeah tr- true stories yes. about the Holocaust and having read those books. Um, and um, so Hutzpah, uh, we, I'll link to the episode, but Hutzpah is superheroes of the Holocaust, not superheroes like people who fly. You write and draw a comic book. Uh, actually, and Wayne works with you. Um, who's you know Wayne, our regular, it's, our yeah, regular it's, it's anthology yeah. comics. Wayne's yeah, Wayne's the lead project writer. I'm the lead project artist and the uh, the project editor. Right, and but what they are is those are stories about real life survivors of the World War II Holocaust, and every single one of those stories is designed and and this is not a criticism in a negative way it's a positive Mm -hmm. criticism every single story in Hutzpah is designed to make you feel something it's designed to make you feel Mm -hmm. bad Mm -hmm. and or proud of the person in the story like there are stories of triumph Mm -hmm. over you know one of the worst um, incidents in the history of humanity right like that's but like you're not supposed to you're not supposed to read those books and go eh you know like that would be bad right (laughs) right like the entire point is to go oh my god the horror that was going on there Mm -hmm. and i think we use that we use sentimentality in a good way there but it's is it genuine i mean i don't i mean they're real stories so my thinking with i'll say this with hutzpah is yeah those stories are designed to punch people in the field right like you're supposed to and because they're short, you've also read them. All those, those stories average about six. Yeah, they're six to eight pages, right? Right. So that's that's not a lot of time to get people's attention, and get them some, some real information and to move them so that that story actually sticks. So you have to look for the moments in people's lives, you know, at all parts in the spectrum that will really make that happen. Um, and we, we spent a lot of time with Hutzpah talking about tone. And that's something I'm very proud of, that we've struck the right tone on that series. Um, and quite honestly, in a, in a broader sense, you know, at the Holocaust Center, because yes, we're dealing with a, a very heavy subject matter. Um, it, it's work that gets easier, it, but it is work in just maintaining because, you know, that could that could really deplete one spirit if you allow it to. But um, I think my team is really good. They're, we're great, actually, about just maintaining balance with such things. Um, I, I'll throw in real fast. One of our survivors who passed away earlier this year, um, I had heard his story numerous times. He had not, we have not yet told his story in Hutzpah, but he, he's, he had, you know, all the survivors have amazing stories. That's a little tricky sometimes deciding which sure, ones sure. to tell them stories, but he had spoken at the Holocaust center and other places. And we'd taken them to schools and things. I'd heard his story numerous times. And then he passed away and we all attended his services. And I will say his son got up to speak and he said something very simple. He said, my father went through a lot in his life. And I, I can't even, I can't even really articulate why that hit me so hard because he said those that one simple phrase and everything his dad talked about that I sat there and listened to him talk about read about him um I just instantly it I think it it hit me harder because in that moment I equated his experiences with my own Mm -hmm. there's places where there is a little intersection and boy like I (laughs) that was it's like it just opened the floodgates and you know 
is there some sentiment there? Yeah, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, I think we do such a, we, we do sort of damage to ourselves by not allowing ourselves to feel. And um, we need something to kind of punch a hole in that dam from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just saw, speaking of media we've experienced as a child, and I'm and also speaking of other popular media, those songs. Mm-hmm. I was, when this topic came up, I, I thought of two songs. Well, that's why I played The Lonely Man, you know. <laughs> well, then now I got three. Yeah. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of What a Wonderful World, which most of us think of the Louis Armstrong mm-hmm. version. And I thought of Feeling Good. Um, I think originally by Nina Simone, oh. but recently I've heard a mm-hmm. version by Michael mm-hmm. Buble. Mm-hmm. Now, I thought of these two songs because I think, you know, it comes back to tone. Both of those songs, if you read the lyrics, they're just talking about things that you experience out in the world every day, you know, like real things. So there's, you know, there's that hook. It, it, it hooks you because we've all got those experiences and they're all just good things, you know, sunshine, rainbows, and just breezes, like normal stuff. Tone, when you listen to What a Wonderful World, and I'm not saying this is bad, but that song is orchestrated to kind of make you feel that good vibe a little bit more overtly. When you listen to Feeling Good, that song's got swag. Mm-hmm. And so it's still there, but I think it comes across as a little bit more genuine. And I just saw a video of Big Bird lip syncing to Feeling Good as performed by Michael Bublé. <laughs> I got to tell you, I watched this thing and that hit me emotionally more than I thought. And Big Bird, I'm just going to say, kicked ass. <laughs> I, I was not prepared for it, but he did. Mm-hmm. And but it really did. And then there was a second song the video shows as well that he performed on the same show. But from the first line of that song, which is birds flying high, you know how I feel. I was kind of mesmerized. And so we've got these really positive lyrics. We've got Big Bird, who I have affection for from my childhood, and he's still six years old, you know, and and you got a song with swag. You know, it, it made that come across as so genuine, even though it was, you know, it's all artifice because it's it's a guy in a costume <laughs> in front of people in front of television cameras. There's nothing, if you will, genuine about it. It's not like my friend came in my house and started singing the song. But in a way, my friend came to my house and started singing that song. So there there's something when it works, mm-hmm. I think, that you can't categorize or articulate like it just has to be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to get into one last thing. I want to, so going back to the Keith Irwin comment, but also just sort of the criticism from the early 20th century that led to things like Hemingway rejecting the idea of sentimentality and the hard boiled, like sort of trying to re-envision what sentimentality was. I, I think that, especially given what Steph said with the way emotions work, right? Like sentimentality, we sort of use that word, not necessarily we, Hannah and I, but in popular culture right now, popular criticism, we use sentimentality very much to just talk about getting, getting in, in touch with the emotions and by emotions, we mean the girly ones because real men don't, you know, real men are, you know, but like the, we mean loss, emotion, vulnerability, right? And what I'm wondering is we actually do like media that evokes emotion. That's what makes media popular. And I, I'm, and I mean things like, you know, whether you're going to 
a movie like like Dying Young, which Steph mentioned, which is really sad. Um, my 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 typical example is a movie called Savannah Smiles, which is a movie that I have trouble watching to this day. It's really sad and touching. It came out when I was a kid. I know nobody listening is like, what the fuck is he talking about? Yeah, it, trust me, it's a really sad movie. But um, but there are you know there are movies like that that make you cry. But also you go and you watch an Avengers movie when um in the most recent you know spoilers for Avengers Endgame. You've had enough time, <laughs> and like frankly, anybody yeah. who listens to the show has fucking We're seen Avengers in, in game. But like there's a point in Avengers Endgame when Cap gets that hammer. I saw it live mm-hmm. in the theaters twice, both times, standing ovation for a movie theater. People got up and cheered. They're like, yeah, you know, it's, it's like, I mean, but like it, that's an, that's an that's an and nobody is ashamed of that. Right. People just had that emotional connection where they were happy to see an actor playing a fictional comic book character get an imaginary hammer and kick a CGI monster's uh, ass. That's what you're cheering for. Right. But like everybody felt great. Like, yeah, go cap, go. You know, it's an, it's an exciting thing. Right. And people like people don't feel ashamed of being emotionally affected in that positive way. I don't think shy of, if you're watching it with your parents, I don't think people feel ashamed of being <laughs> emotionally enticed by a sex scene in a movie, you know, like there, are like you know, like if you go, if you, if you are, if you see a hot sex scene, you're like, oh yeah, you know, like or or whatever, right? Like you, you might not watch it in certain company, but it's not, it's not bad to have been turned on by a Fifty Shades of Grey or a well, oh, it depends. On, you know, that's a that's a big statement to make in America, right? No, no, I certainly, certainly there are going to be some people, right? But, or, or a love, a love scene, like, oh, that's so sweet that they got married at the end, you know, people cry at weddings, right? But there is something about, or a horror movie, like horror movies, you're not, you know, the entire point of going to a horror movie is to be scared, right? To, you know, that's why jump scares are a thing, right? But there's something about the vulnerability that goes with the sad emotions, right? Like, like we sort of want to, I wonder if there's a thing where the movies that we accuse of being overly sentimental, we have a problem with them because they made us feel human and vulnerable and sad, mm-hmm. you know, like, like if, if you talk about dying young, you know, Steph was very honest about it. You know, she, you, you said why it makes you feel emotional because of a personal connection. Right. But like, because of that, you don't want to. You don't want to watch a movie that's going to make you cry in the wrong company because it's sort of embarrassing to cry in front of people mm-hmm. in a way that I mm-hmm. in a way that like I, I mean I don't I don't want to be horny in front of people either but <laughs> but like lots of but but it's not uncommon for movies to do that and nobody's embarrassed by cheering for Captain America like I don't think I don't think any person walked out of that movie and said ooh I I I, sh- I shouldn't have shown my joy at Captain America getting that hammer you know like but you know what Mav I think maybe in that instance because and i agree by the way because i actually looked up that scene on youtube recently and specifically looked up like versions of it with audiences watching because gotta tell you a lot of fun. yeah <laughs> but it is just but i think like that scene in particular that whole that whole extended scene you know where all you see all the other characters and the big battle and the stuff that's like a sporting event yeah you know like so we we don't like like the other kinds of, of, and I do think that was sentimental though. Like if you've read comics for years and you were there and you saw that, you, we've been waiting for that, that depiction of that our whole lives. Look, so look, I wasn't, I wasn't cheering. I was crying. Yeah. Actually, mm-hmm. I, uh, I mean, I, I, cr- I guess I'm overly cinemal, which was probably what was a bad idea for me to stay cinemalism. Uh, <laughs> 
to to give some examples, I cried so hard that snot was coming out of my nose at last Christmas, even though I knew the twist and figured it out. I cried yesterday when the Star Wars trailer came on in front of Knives Out. <laughs> I cried through the back half of the Avengers. Mm-hmm. I I cried whenever I thought that there would be no more Spider-Man. And I yeah, I, I've cried through every Disney and Pixar movie. To the point where I think I think I've shared this before uh, on Toy Story Four when we got out of the theater after sitting through all the credits, I was crying so hard that police officers were looking at Josh weird, and I'd be like, "Oh, it's fine, that's no, fine. It's Toy Story Four. It just really messed me up." Um, which I did not cry at Frozen Two, by the way, because it was not good, and it was Game of Thrones, which I also didn't cry about. So I'm just mad. Anyway, not the point. I would it's say it's okay to I, cry. I, yeah, I don't. I don't think you're overly sentimental. I think that's kind of lovely. Um, I'm gonna give you two real fast. I'm gonna try and make a fast two fast examples because if we're all sharing our feelings here, then it's, I have to do the same. I re- I've been rewatching Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and I've been watching them in order. But I did cheat because there was one episode I wanted to specifically see. It's called The Visitor, and that was later in the series. That was I think season four or five. Um. I, I'll let anybody who's interested, like, look that up and just see what's going on. But the, the, one of the appeals of Deep Space Nine to me was the, the father-son dynamic in the, those two main characters, Commander Ben Sisko and his son Jake. And I remembered this episode from when it first aired 20 years ago, and I had not seen it since. But being a sucker for things like that, I actually realized that it was almost 20 years later. So I timed it 20 years to the day later and watched that episode. Let me tell you something. That episode destroyed me. I watched it. I was at home. <laughs> I was by myself. And thank good because by the time I was done watching that, that you know, without the commercials, just under an hour, I literally had to text a couple people and go, oh, my God, this has wiped me out. I've got to go to bed. <laughs> I had to lay down. Like, it destroyed me. And, you know, it, it just, I hadn't experienced that in quite some time. The other one, though, E.T. Have you all seen that commercial, this Xfinity commercial with E.T. that they debuted at Thanksgiving? Yes, yeah. and I felt so dumb because I cried over it. And, ugh. Actually, I, 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 te- dumb. <laughs> I, I, I teed for a class, and the professor showed a clip at the end of E.T., and I was the TA, and I was sitting in the back crying in the dark, and I was really afraid the students would turn around and see me crying over E.T. Anyway, not the point. They didn't turn around because they were crying. <laughs> I guarantee if you... It was really, so, it was really I, dusty I, in here. There's something good going on. <laughs> <laughs> e. T. So the, I saw it on Thanksgiving, but what I didn't realize is the extended version of that actually goes about four minutes long. So I watched that. <laughs> so I watched it and yup, had all the, had all the reactions. And if anything was more moved because it's, you know, I'm an adult and Elliot's an adult and all the things. But here's the thing. So then right after watching it, for whatever reason, I saw listed on, on the YouTube thing, uh, uh, you know, watch, you know, a reaction video watching this guy watch the video, which was like 10 minutes long or whatever. So this guy, he's, I don't know, maybe 30, 35 years old. He's a, he's, a, he's obviously a metal guy because he's wearing a black t-shirt and black hat. I think it had Metallica on his t-shirt and he's, and he says, I don't know what this is about. I just know it maybe he's a commercial ET, blah, blah, blah. So here we go. Plays it. That guy broke down so hard <laughs> that after he'd finished watching it, he goes to make some statements and follow up and he kept choking up. And it was, I gotta say, I thought it was adorable. Um, and the thing is, we know that's a commercial. It's not even like we're watching the original movie, which will pull at your heartstrings and stuff or your heart light. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but this was a commercial. You know, it is, this was designed to sell you on something. Doesn't even matter. I think when it's when it's powerful enough, I don't care what people say. I think people are waiting to be moved yeah. to that degree. And when something succeeds, that's <laughs> that's when we get tears. You know, when yeah. it, I, 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 it was funny watching this metalhead guy just sort of break down over it. Well, I mean, why does everybody watch, um, you know, like kitten videos on the internet, right? Like that's, like, like that's, Aww. you know, yeah, like, see there, you, different you, species <laughs> of animals <laughs> yeah. being friends. Yeah, for, those are the best. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've seen stuff. It's like, oh look, it's a video of a kitten and a goat. Isn't it adorable? <laughs> it is so cute. Yeah, <laughs> see, things, yeah, things like that. But yeah, this society. I mean, our society really rewards bullies, rewards like psychopaths and you mean sociopaths. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I think like I think the same attitude that is anti-sentimentality is the same like it's the same society that brought us our current president. You can edit this out if you want. No, no, not the one. end. <laughs> okay, so I I mean, yeah, if we feel like sentimentality is if, if something if media is there to like manipulate us or it's fake or whatever, then we're going to be against that. Or if we're like so anti like like mask men should be like manly, strong, never weak, then yeah, I can see being against sentimentality. But otherwise I think oh. it's a good thing and we need more of that and we need people being in touch with their emotions and accepting people as, you know, full human beings. And so we don't get into situations like this. In the I, I cry all the time. I just <laughs> uh, <laughs> not as much as I I think well, yeah. <laughs> you do cry a lot. Um, I, I'll tell you, no. <laughs> Over the fact that you don't get enough podcast reviews. No, oh yeah, yeah, that too. No, no, not well. No, but I was, I was thinking about like media. So, so, um, so I'll I'll tell you one. You know, or again, best show on television. Uh, I no, no. Hey, you, you see, you're, gonna, you're gonna feel bad. No, oh. no, Riverdale. Um, you're gonna feel bad because I, I'll tell you the the last. Oh, time no, I know exactly. No, 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 no. I no, cried no. on the funeral episode of Riverdale. Yep. It's so emotional because it is literally yep. an hour of television. I mean, it's roughly see, this is a good thing. Line. This I mean, is a good thing. But it's an hour of television where they're talking about Luke Perry's character oh, dying. Oh, yeah. But like, yeah. really, it's very, very, very See, clear you, that the cast is talking about You're married to someone who Perry. doesn't cry about or any movies, yeah. I would think like I would think twice about I don't know oh, I, but you know you've seen me cry at movies no before. yeah you have I'm just saying that I think we need to get better at identifying yeah. people that are not so good people that we don't want like to be you know, president yes okay yes. You know, Hannah you said something interesting too and it, like you just made me think of this in this day and age you know because what have we been talking about with sentiment and how you know it brings up feelings and nostalgia and everything but you know to some degree, maybe some perverted degree, you know, feelings of nostalgia would bring us slogans like, you know, make America great again. Steph said it, but yeah, I, that was me. That was me. Not, not oh, did, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I think. I think. I, I don't. I don't know. I. I was confused. But yes, you are. Either way, everybody is correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Um. Which is why I think, like, I mean, sentimentality, like, some definitions definitely, like, include nostalgia. But the reason why I find Dickens's version so powerful is because it's not necessarily rooted in nostalgia. It's rooted in the idea that we are all human beings and we should care for each other as individuals and recognize yeah. that individuality is important. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, Dickens, like Dickens was a dick um, in real life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, didn't, you he got, go through, didn't he go through the orphanage system himself? N- not quite. His father was taken to debtor's prison and okay, he had to okay. like work as a kid and le- like had to leave his education behind and worked at boot blacking factory and also was like a reporter and like worked in the law. And that's how he like saw a bunch of things. Um, uh, David uh, Copperfield is sort of kind of um a autobiography which you know you see the dc cddc um but yeah he you know dickens was a dick and was not great about everything but you know at at the root of his stories he was far more progressive than he actually was at a human in my opinion but that you know it's literature so we can argue about it one day in another episode about charles dickens <laughs> <laughs> kind of like how einstein was a dick in his personal life but like humanitarian sort of in, in a more abstract way well people are complex and that's sort yeah. of that sort of thing i think that um maybe part of you know the idea of I'm going to be John Wayne. I'm going to be a stoic man. I'm going to be, I'm going to be Hemingway. I'm going to be the stoic man who doesn't show my feelings is it, there's, there's sort of um, an inclination to sort of perform masculinity, at least as though we are simple people. We, you know, you know, this is what it means to be a man. I will be stoic. I will be this. I will be this. I will be hardcore. And the complexity of human emotion sort of, you know, sort of fucks with that, right? Like you have to like sort of, you know, if you can have a masculine side and a feminine side or even just a happy side and a sad side, if you can enjoy many things, right? You know, no, I'm a sports fan. Well, just because you're a sports fan, that doesn't sure. mean you don't like, you know, girly romantic movies, right? Which I love, right? I mean, obviously on this show, I'm the one who likes rom-coms. Um, a can, lot. You like, can you like can you like sports and and like Broadway musicals? Yes, you know, and mm-hmm. they're complex. I agree. Are are any of you familiar with the story about when uh, the producers of the TV show Happy Days were asked to have the Fonz cry on an episode? No. Mm-mm. So so the story goes: um, the producers started receiving letters from a social worker or workers, and because that show, I, you know, for those of us old enough to remember, that show was really popular in the late seventies. So um, they were asked if they could have an have an episode where Fonzie would cry because the the social workers were working with kids who loved this show and i can tell i'll tell you at one point i was actually in a group home and i was maybe 7 6 or 7 and i can yes every what was it tuesday night i think they would gather us around tv and we would watch that just before going to bed that show was popular so but they 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 were having problems getting some of these kids to open up with their emotions they you know these you know a lot of them had been through things so they weren't they, they weren't allowing that that damn to burst. So they said it would be helpful for them to see a role model a figure like that cry. So what they did is they scripted an episode where Fonzie's best friend, Richie Cunningham was in a motorcycle accident and he's in a hospital. And at one point Fonzie's in the room alone with Richie and he cries because he wants his, he wants his friend back. And I believe he prays as well. And from what I remember reading, a lot of the kids were upset by that episode. They were mad that the Fonz cried, but ultimately it got the result it needed. And when I've when I've caught the occasional stray episode over the years and when that one comes on, there's 
you know, Happy Days is a straight up sitcom. There is nothing, you know, that is not, that's not, it's no good place. But, <laughs> but there's some power in that. And watching them use media with intent, you know, with some sentimental intent. So what mm-hmm. I'm hearing is, is that we might not have resolved exactly a clear definition of sentimentality, <laughs> but we have resolved that we should feel our feelings and we should cry in the theater if we want to. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thanks, that Wayne. Sounds good to me. I'm not waiting because I resolved something. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> See, I thought you were going to resolve that, like, uh, like. So we talked earlier about me having my soundboard. I thought you were going to resolve that the Good Place was the best show ever. I thought that was like you were going to shoehorn that in there, and I was all ready to hit this button. It's no Riverdale. Wait, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> where I have, I have, <laughs> yes, I have a Wayne recording. Do, of it's no Riverdale. Do which? <laughs> I reply? Of course, it's not Riverdale. It's better than Riverdale. No, mm. no, no. Again, you you should see the funeral episode. I don't think um, I've cried in the good place. Yet. I've cried on the good place many times. Oh, really? Yeah. And I will absolutely cry oh, on good. the last episode. Okay. But, <laughs> I, I def- yeah, I definitely cl- cried um, in the last episode. I, I cried in the last finale. But like, you know, the good place is a really good example of like how the 18th century like philosophy of sentimentality, if we want to call it that, remains in that feelings inform our ethical actions. So we should mm-hmm. go off the air now and go feel things and do good. It is the Christmas <laughs> holiday season. Yeah, it is. I almost feel is. like I'm in a mass. Like go off and <laughs> I forget I, what they say because it's been so long since I've been to a mass. <laughs> I was trying to do like the Dickens, you know, it's Christmas uh, sentiment. Which when I told Josh what we were doing, he rolled his eyes and said, "Of course, you're doing a sentimentality episode at Christmas." Um, oh. Yeah. I'm going to have to work on him. <laughs> but, you know, happy holidays, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Happy holidays. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to thank both of our guests for joining us. So, you know, thanks, Marcel. Uh, anything you want to plug? Um, we are currently working on Hoods Pal Volume 4, which we hope to have out before the end of the month. So be on the lookout for that. Mm, wonderful. Awesome. Awesome. And Stephanie? Um, I just want to thank you for having me. And um, at some point, I will plug something. <laughs> at some point. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully in the near future. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hanley Rogers. Maybe tweeting about Star Wars. Maybe not. <laughs> oh yeah star wars oh you gotta yeah well you, go you, out and see it you, well we have to go out and see it because we're having an episode about it which you know presumably if you can hear this the blog is back up and maybe i've written a blog post about it which i've not gotten to i was going to do this week except for now i'm dealing with trying to get the server up so that you can hear this episode <laughs> so but spoiler alert that episode is probably just going to be a lot of crying from me <laughs> you're gonna be sentimental about star wars Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. All right. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick or on my blog if it's up at, at www.chrismaverick.com. You can follow the show on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, all at Vox Podcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we post about what upcoming episodes are going to be. And you can give us comments and feedback on what you thought of individual episodes like this one. And if you enjoy the episodes, we'd uh, appreciate it if you subscribe to us on iTunes 
iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you do that, it does help other people find the show and it makes us feel good inside. And I will cry because Aww. I am a sentimental person and I will love you forever yes, and ever is. and call you George or I don't know, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank you at home for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 I think to myself